0: Father, we do thank you again for this opportunity to gather together as a body of believers that we might study your word to worship you by means of the Holy Spirit and truth, that we may take these things and apply them in our lives to grow to spiritual maturity, that the ultimate purpose of our lives as believers is to glorify you in the angelic conflict. And that starts by learning your word, transforming our thinking into the thinking of Christ so that we may apply the principles of doctrine in our lives to grow spiritually, grow to spiritual maturity, and thereby glorify you. So Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. As we study this portion of Galatians, we've stopped at the beginning between 15 and 16, where the Apostle Paul is publicly confronting the Apostle Peter with his defection from the gospel of grace. He's been under pressure from these Judaizers that have come up from Jerusalem who are teaching still under the old covenant, under the Mosaic Law, that Jews were to keep separate from Gentiles and the Jews were to follow the precepts of the Mosaic Law we have studied the fact that the Mosaic Law is no longer in effect, that Jesus Christ was the end of the law, that He fulfilled the law, and that the Mosaic Law was a temporary conditional covenant that was given not to all mankind, but to Jews only. If you go through the Old Testament, specifically the passages in the prophet, where God, God pronounces judgment on the Gentile nation, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Minor Prophets, where there are numerous lists of, of, of God's prophetic condemnation of the Gentiles. He never condemns them for disobeying the Mosaic Law. Read through every single one of them and you won't find one instance where their condemnation is based on failure to obey the Mosaic Law. It's all based on failures relative to the basic conditions of the Noahic Covenant, which was for all mankind, and failure to, to bless Israel. Remember the Scriptures teach that um, spiritual... Um, that God would bless all nations who blessed Israel, and he would curse those who cursed Israel. So those Gentile nations who had a hostile attitude towards the Jews came under condemnation and judgment. Uh, Those are the reasons for divine judgment on the Gentile nations. It's never related to the Mosaic Law, so the Gentiles were never required to obey the Mosaic Law. And the problem in the early church was that these Judaizers wanted to bring the Gentiles under the Mosaic Law in order to reap the benefits of justification. So Paul makes the statement at the beginning of verse 16. We have a a present active participle that is adverbial in nature and means because we know a man is not justified or declared righteous by the works of the law. And the principle here is that justification is not based on human obedience. It's not based on the law but it's based exclusively through faith alone in Christ alone. So we've come to the subject of justification. Now, the Apostle Paul says this because we know and formulates it that way because this principle has been established since the Old Testament. Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith and not by his obedience. So this principle has been known to Jews From the scriptures throughout the ages even though they have rejected it in their legalism but in order to understand the dynamics of justification as it is explained in the next five verses and throughout the rest of this epistle we have stopped to look at what underlies justification and we are answering the question how is it that God can justify sinners what are the dynamics involved in justification and to do that, we have to start with the character of God. So we start by analyzing divine essence. God is sovereign. God is perfect righteousness. God is absolute justice. God is immeasurable love. He is eternal life. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is immutable. And He is veracity. That comprises the character of God. Now, the area of divine essence that we're focusing on is His integrity, which is composed of His perfect righteousness, absolute justice, and immeasurable love. These three facets of His essence work together. They are not um, contradictory to one another. Often you have people ask the question, well, how is it that a loving God can send His creatures to the lake of fire? And the question that you should respond with is how is it that a perfectly righteous God and an absolutely just God can send, can accept creatures into heaven that do not measure up to His absolute righteousness? See, so often people want to take one aspect of divine essence out of context and focus on that and blow that up and then try to read everything else into that one characteristic. And all of these Aspects. All of these characteristics work together in the essence of God. In different activities, in different situations, one aspect of His essence may be more obvious than in another. The same is true for you. One, one day in one situation, your honesty and your integrity may be um, more apparent. In another situation, uh, the fact that you are uh, patient may be uh, more apparent. Uh, but they, they are not contradictory. You just have this manifold aspect to God. He is very, very complex, and this is, um, uh, in, in many ways, understanding the essence in this way is a simplification. Remember in the Scriptures, we are told that God's ways are not our ways, neither are His thoughts our thoughts. So God is far beyond mankind in, in His makeup, and too often the problem with men is that we try to, understand God on the basis of a finite human frame of reference without realizing that God is far beyond anything we can ever uh, comprehend. So when we look at the integrity of God here, and we're focusing on the righteousness, justice, and love of God. We need to break these down and look at each aspect. So we are, in terms of our outline, we started last week with the essence of God and we covered um, Three points there. Now we're under Roman numeral two, which is the righteousness and justice of God. Uh, letter A, righteousness. The righteousness of God. This is based on the Greek word dikaiosune. This is point number one. The Greek word is dikaiosune, a word that is rich in meaning among the, uh, in terms of its history in the Greek language. D i k A-I-O-S-U-N-E, dikayosune. The verb is dikayo, D-I-K-A-I-O. And another noun is decay, D-I-K-E. All of these have as their root the idea of righteousness and justice. It has two different meanings depending on the context. Righteousness refers to the absolute standard which underlies this concept of of, uh, perfection and justice looks at it in terms of the application of the standard. So righteousness is the absolute standard of the law and justice is the application of the law to specific situations. In the Scripture, God's character is the standard of righteousness, the absolute standard by which all things are evaluated. So righteousness is the standard of divine essence, and justice is the application of divine essence, how it relates to man. Righteousness sets the standard, the absolute. Justice then measures it out or executes it or applies it to humanity passage we're looking at is Romans 1, 16 and 17. So turn with me there. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, that is for in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that is, from saving faith to spiritual life faith, as it is written, but the righteous man, that is, the the righteous man, the one who is justified, shall live by means of faith. So we see the relationship here in this verse between the person who is justified or declared righteous and the righteousness of God and the gospel itself. This is what we are understanding here. The word righteousness, for in it, the righteousness of God, this is a genitive construction in the Greek. Now, anybody who gets beyond first-year Greek suddenly discovers that Greek, the knowledge of Greek, does not necessarily resolve all of your theological questions. In fact, what it does is it opens the door to another variety of theological questions. When you look at language, a, a genitive can be used any number of different ways. It can be used, for example, we talk of Jesus as the son of God. That would be a genitive construction. Son of describes relationship, so that's a genitive of relationship. You can have a, uh, some, something that would be, uh, you can talk about filling up a, a glass with water. You would use a genitive of content to describe what you're filling the glass with. Uh, Here you have what is called, uh, and sometimes you can see two or three different ideas in a genitive. You have two ideas here. You have a, a possessive genitive, which describes something that God possesses. He possesses plus R. So in the sense of a possessive genitive, what we see here is the standard of God's character, that He has perfect righteousness. But this can also be viewed as a subjective genitive now that is a concept that a lot of seminary students have trouble grasping is the difference between a subjective and an objective genitive so i'm not expecting you to grasp it right away but the point in a subjective genitive is in the sense that there's a sense of action in the in the phrase then the the subject which would be god since we're talking about the righteousness of god that this talks about god in terms of what god produces And what God produces is justice, the application of his righteousness. So both ideas are present in this phrase, the kaiasune to seu, for in it, the righteousness, that is not only the absolute standard of God's character, but also the application of that character, is revealed from faith, that is, saving faith, to spiritual life faith. So what we see, just to summarize what's going on here, when we talk about the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God is the standard by which God judges. So it either approves or rejects. So we start off by saying what the righteousness of God demands. The righteousness is a standard and that standard is going to demand something, a certain level of behavior. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God demands execute or apply. The standard demand something, the justice of God executes it. In light of that, we can say that what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. And what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. Now we're building a long statement here, brick by brick, in order to ultimately understand the concept of justification by faith so we've got five points here six points to understand the relationship of righteousness and justice point number one justice guards divine essence when we look at the essence of God justice serves as the guardian justice as the application of the divine standard of righteousness guards The essence of God from compromise. The essence of God, God cannot be compromised with sin. Justice guards that. Second point is that righteousness guards divine justice. Righteousness guards divine justice. Righteousness provides the absolute standard that divine justice must adhere to. Divine justice, therefore, as the application of divine essence, if you pictured it as a divine essence in terms of a of a funnel, the valve at the bottom of the funnel is the justice of God. We might say that the hinge upon or, or trapdoor here, the hinge upon which that trapdoor which guards divine essence is the standard. Righteousness determines the function of the door. The function of the door prevents the perfection of divine essence from having a relationship with any creature or any object that does not possess perfect righteousness. So point number one is that justice guards divine essence and point number two, righteousness guards divine justice. Therefore we can see in point number three that righteousness is the key to God's character. Everything depends on the righteousness of God. God cannot tolerate anything less than His perfect standard. Brings us then to point number four, that perfect righteousness protects divine justice when dealing with sinful man. Perfect righteousness protects divine justice when God is dealing with sinful man. If God were just just, without having an absolute standard for His justice, then there would be no absolute criterion and God would therefore, be His justice would not be stable, it would be unstable, unstable. There would not be a standard. So in that sense, perfect righteousness provides that absolute standard for divine justice to utilize when dealing with sinful men. Point five, perfect righteousness rejects all sin. Therefore, justice must condemn sin. God is required by His absolute righteousness to condemn all sin. Therefore, in terms of its position relative to God's absolute, all sin, no matter what it is, we may have a relative standard for evaluating sin. We may say that, that a white lie is not as bad as perjury or suborning perjury in some instances may not be as bad as suborning perjury. In other instances, we may have various ways in which we try to say that one Uh, Sin is not as bad as another sin, but as far as God is concerned, any infraction of his absolute standard is as destructive to a relationship with God as any other infraction, whether it is murder or whether it is telling a white lie. As far as God's absolute standard is concerned, the issue is obedience or disobedience. Take, for example, what happens in the garden. You have the issue is eating the fruit. Now, fruit, eating fruit is not an inherently uh, immoral act. We do not think of eating fruit as something that is going to uh, uh, send us to eternal condemnation. And yet that is exactly what happens in the Garden of Eden. If you were to go out and poll any number of people out there, I would, I would bet everything I own that eating fruit would not be on their list of the ten worst sins. And yet that, is, I think, is one of the reasons you have something as innocuous as fruit-eating being the issue in the Garden of Eden is because eating fruit is not something we think of as being sinful. The issue is obedience to God or disobedience. That's what everything hinges on. And man wanted to exercise his own judgment independent of God's judgment and eat the fruit. And therein lies the, the uh, foundation of that sin and because uh, sin is so wicked and evil and the consequences of it are so devastating, righteousness must condemn all sin, must reject all sin, sin, so that justice condemns it. Point number six, righteousness must also reject all human good because it is relative. Righteousness, perfect righteousness, must also reject all human good Because it is relative. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteousness is a filthy rash. God is the one who is speaking. So what we learn from that is that absolute righteousness provides the standard for the function of justice. Justice guards divine essence. Absolute righteousness guards divine justice. But that's only two-thirds of what makes up the integrity of God. We can't focus on just one aspect or another aspect. We have to focus on all three aspects. So that brings us to our third subject here, which is divine love. 1 John 4, 16 says, God is love. One of the most profound statements in Scripture which, focuses on, which summarizes all of the divine character in terms of one attribute. God is love. So how does divine love fit within the complex of righteousness and justice? Remember, what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. So what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses, and what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. If righteousness is the standard and justice is the application, then love is the motivator. Love is the motivation of divine integrity. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. That's the verb, agapao. God so loved the world, what? That he gave. What is it that motivated God's action of giving his unique son for salvation? It's love. It's clear in that passage, as we're going to see in a few minutes, that it is a certain kind of love. But it is God's love in His character that is the motivation. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. So if we go back and look at the integrity formula that we are building, we will say what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes through the love of God and expressed by His grace. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes through the love of God and expressed through His grace. So, therefore, what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God provides through the grace of God, namely the fullness of blessing of God as a love gift, a grace gift, to the believer. And what the righteousness of God condemns, the justice of God Uh, Or what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns, but always in the love of God so that the divine solution is then provided through the grace of God. I'll say that one more time. what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns, but always in the love of God so that the divine solution is provided through the grace of God. Now grace is not Part of the divine essence. The divine essence does not include grace. Grace is the policy of God in dealing with mankind. That's the fourth aspect of this that we are looking at, and we'll come to it a little later on as we discuss each aspect of this formula. But in stating it in its full form right now, we see the four aspects are the righteousness of God, the justice of God, and the love of God, which comprise the integrity of God, and then its expression through grace, which is the policy of God. So we're discussing divine love because so many people do not understand divine love. As people, we tend to look at God and try to interpret God within our own frame of reference. And when it comes to trying to understand the love of God through a human frame of reference, we fall into many traps because human love is inseparable from human emotion. And human emotion is unstable. And very, very few people truly understand what human love is which is exemplified by the marriage failure rate in this country. Very few people understand what love is. They think of love in terms of emotion, in terms of feeling, in terms of how one person makes another person feel, and as long as you make me feel this way, I'm going to love you. But if you make me feel less than wonderful, then I'm not going to love you anymore. So love, therefore, is viewed as something that is conditional and dependent upon circumstances and emotional feelings. And if that's your basis for understanding God, then when the Scripture says God so loved the world and you, you're interpreting God's love in terms of human love and you're, determ- and you're interpreting that human love in terms of emotion, then you're going to interpret God's relationship to you in terms of an emotional love that is inherently unstable and dependent upon your obedience. What's the result? You don't believe in eternal security. Why? You don't understand the character of God, you don't understand divine love, and you don't understand human love. And the result is you're always going to end up making human behavior the issue. And that's going to carry out in all realms probably of your, in every realm of, of relationship in your life. You're going to see these things as conditional and therefore you're never going to have success in any kind of relationship or in marriage. So it's important for us to distinguish and to define divine love. Point number one, divine love is infinitely superior to human love. Divine love is infinitely superior to human love. They are analogous, but they must not be confused. Now what do I mean by that? Well, we're going to get a little philosophy lesson in epistemology. Epistemology is the whole uh, branch of philosophy that looks at the subject of knowledge. How do we know anything and how do we know God? Well, there's three different views. One view is that our knowledge of God is univocal. Another is that our knowledge of God is analogous. And a third is that our knowledge of God is equivocal. Now, there are a lot of implications to this. I'm just simplifying this for understanding here. Univocal means that if you have two things you're trying to understand, man on the one hand and God on the other, That if our knowledge is univocal, then that means it's one. That our knowledge defined by this circle would be the same as God's knowledge. So you just have one circle defining. It's the same. But that we know that to be false because God has said that His ways are not our ways, neither are His thoughts our thoughts. So it's not univocal. Neither is it equivocal. We can talk about God's love being so different from man that equivocal means that they do not have any point of contact whatsoever. And if we were to say that God's love is so radically different from man's love that, that they're not the same, then when we say God is love, it would mean nothing to us because God's love would, not be, would have no point of contact with ours. So God's love is analogous. That means that this, if this describes the human conception of love or human love and this circle describes divine love, that there are certain overlapping points of identity. But there is much that is dissimilar. And that's what we mean by analogous. An analogy is a comparison. But there has to be some point of similarity for that comparison to be real. Some people go so far as to talk about divine love that it, they almost end up over here in an equivocal concept where we, when we say God is love, we don't have any comprehension whatsoever of what that means. But there is a point of analogy. But there is vast difference between human love and divine love so we say that divine love is infinitely superior to human love they're analogous but they are not identical they are not to be confused point number two human love is sentimental emotional superficial and constantly changing human love is sentimental emotional superficial and constantly changing and when people don't understand the difference between divine love and human love, then when they talk about God's love and God's relationship to them, they constantly end up viewing, the, viewing God as being sentimental, emotional, superficial, and constantly changing. And you see the application of that in how they worship God. They have an emotional, superficial view of God and worship, and it's constantly changing. And so their whole worship service then is based on emotional stimulation. Now, if divine love is different and divine character is different, then the last thing in the world we want to do is end up having a view of the Christian life based on sentimentality and superficiality. There's a lot more to God than that. Point number three, divine love is eternal and immutable based on His perfect righteousness and totally devoid of emotion, which is by definition unstable and shifting. You look up emotion sometime in the dictionary. If you're having a trouble understanding why I say that God is not emotional. Or God does not possess emotion. If you read the dictionary definition of emotion, you know that you don't want any of that to apply to God. Human emotion by definition is unstable and constantly changing. There is nothing in God that changes. He is without shadow or shifting. He is without change or shifting shadow. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His love is eternal. Immutable and based on the absolute standard of His righteousness. Therefore, it is totally devoid of emotion. God cannot, will not, and never does fall in love. His love never changes. God's love has been the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't love you any more today than He did yesterday. He will not love you any less tomorrow, especially if you're a believer who goes out and goes into... uh, Uh, backsliding state of carnality and commits mass murder if you go postal in the morning and wipe out everybody you work with with an Uzi God's love for you will not be any less tomorrow afternoon than it is today that is a profound statement that very few people understand because they think in terms of divine love as human love and change it but God's love never changes it is the same yesterday today and forever All of his divine attributes are immutable. Therefore, divine love does not change. He doesn't fall in love. He doesn't maintain his love. He doesn't grow in his love. And he doesn't sustain his love by emotional stimulation. God is love, period. Absolute, changeless love. Point number four God is independent. Therefore, none of God's attributes depend upon any creature for their fulfillment. How many times have you heard somebody ask the question, Why did God create man? Well, God is love, so He needed fellowship. If God needed fellowship, then He's not God. If God needs anything, by definition, He's not God, because by definition, God is independent and totally self-sustaining. Now, this brings us to a very, very important point in theology, and a very subtle point. And if you can think about this on your way home today instead of what you're going to have for lunch, you might have some brilliant insights. God exists as a trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's righteousness can love only perfect righteousness. So God the Father is plus R, God the Son is plus R, and God the Holy Spirit is plus R. Because of the perfect righteousness in each member of the Trinity, God the Father can love God the Holy Spirit. God the Father can love God the Son. God the Son can love God the Holy Spirit and God the Father. God the Holy Spirit can love the Father and the Son. So what do we have here? We have eternal life as an aspect of deity. So God is love for eternity And within the relationship of the Trinity, there are two eternal objects for divine love for each person of the Trinity. Now, if you look at another uh, religious system like Islam, where you have what is called strict monotheism, where all you have is the single God, Allah, then Allah either is love or is not love. Those are the only two options that you have. If he is love, having no trinity, then there is no object for his love. And he becomes dependent upon his creation for an object of love. Which means that in Islam, if God is, if Allah is love, possesses that characteristic, then he's dependent on his creature, so he's a very, very small God. He's not really God at all. So, if he, is, if he is love, he has no eternal object, so he can't really be loved. That means that he is not truly loved, so there's no concept of grace, no concept of love, and no concept of forgiveness. And if you study Islamic theology, that's what's true. It operates on pure fatalism. And it is very mean and cruel in its application. Now, you can talk, they, and they do talk about Allah and love until they're blue in the face, but there's no basis for it, and it's obvious in the way the whole religious system works itself out. So that's a little nugget to think about, why the Trinity is important. Every aspect of of biblical theology relates together and has application. Point number four then, once again, God is independent. Therefore, none of God's attributes depend on a creature for their fulfillment. In His Trinitarian existence, God has eternal, perfectly righteous objects for His love and is eternally satisfied in those relationships. So God does not create man in order to have an object for His love. Point number five, God is eternal, therefore His love demands an eternal object. God is eternal, therefore His love demands an eternal object. And point number six, Divine love has as its eternal object each member of the Trinity. So those are six points as far as our introduction to divine love goes. Now we're going to shift our focus to God's love and creatures. If God's love is superior to human love and God's love is based on His absolute righteousness, how can God love sinful creatures? Point number one. Under God's love and creatures. When God first created man, Adam and Eve were both plus R. So here we go back to the original creation, the sixth day of the restoration week, day six, and incidentally those were literal 24 hour days. God first created the man, Ha Adam in His image, Genesis 1:26 and 27, which means that man was created in perfection. He had possessed perfect righteousness and therefore was compatible with God's perfect righteousness. They could have a perfect relationship. Then God took from the man a rib and created the woman. The woman also possessed perfect righteousness so that she could have a relationship with God. And every day we're told in Genesis 2 that God came in the cool of the day and He had fellowship with the man and the woman and taught them many different things, answered their questions, uh, helped them to function. I'm sure it was quite uh, fascinating to listen to the discussion that would have taken place between Adam, uh, the woman, and God in the Garden of Eden. Here, here Adam has been placed in this incredible environment, perfect environment, with a, with a vast array of creatures. We can only imagine all of the creatures that were there because so many have become extinct. And all were friendly. They, they, were, they were all gramnivorous. That means they all ate grass. And there were no carnivores in the Garden of Eden. They, uh, there was no sin, so there's no hostility in creation. Everything is perfect. And Adam, one of his first jobs was to name and categorize all the animals and he was to take care of the garden, and he was to uh, have a positive interaction with his entire environment. So he had all kinds of things to ask God about and to learn about, and God would give him uh, instruction. And Adam had perhaps the highest IQ of any man ever created, so his uh, intellectual capacities were far beyond anything we can grasp. See, man is not evolving higher and higher to a higher intelligence. He is devolving from the highest intelligence, Adam in perfect environment in the garden, confusion and and loss of uh, capacity and ability in every realm of his his being as a result of sin. So, God first creates Adam and Eve. They are perfectly righteous. Therefore, God can have, can love them. Divine love, in this case, is personal because there is something of value in the object of love. When you make the statement, I love you. There is I the subject and you the object. In personal love the object over here has something of some attraction to the subject. The I love you because there is something in you that is attractive to me and that meets my standards. So that the standard of God which is his righteousness approved the righteousness in Adam and Eve, so that the justice of God could bless them through the love of God. In fact, in the Garden of Eden, justice is not an issue at all because of the perfect compatibility of man with God, plus R with plus R. The only place you see justice functioning in the garden has to do with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God hangs His justice out there on a tree and says, There's, you can eat from any tree in the garden Except for one, the, tree of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On the day you eat of that, you will certainly die. It's definite. It's a very emphatic expression in the Hebrew. It is a you have your main verb that is coupled with what's called an infinitive construct in the Hebrew, and it is a um, can't spell it construct. And when you take a main verb and couple it with an infinitive construct of that same verb, it serves to emphasize the statement. So it's in bold faith. You will certainly, absolutely die at the moment you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, they didn't die physically, so we know the issue wasn't physical death. Physical death is a consequence of what happens uh, in sin. They died spiritually. They were immediately separated, separated from God. They became minus R, God was plus R, and there could no longer be a relationship between God and man. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Point number one was when God first created man, Adam and Eve were both plus R, and thus were worthy objects of divine love. Point number two, plus R can only love plus R. This was personal love from God to a creature who possessed plus R. Point number three, let's define personal love. This is very, very important to understand. If we're going to communicate about love, then we have to be very precise in our definition. Personal love is that category of love that is selective, conditional, and dependent upon the appeal or merit in the person loved. This is what happens at the altar. You promise to love. I love you because I find something appealing in you. I find some merit in you. Uh, you make me feel wonderful and I'm going to give you the opportunity to make me feel wonderful for the rest of your life. Personal love is that category of love that is selective, not everybody. It is conditional. That means it's based on the object of love meeting certain standards. As long as you meet these standards, I will love you. You fall short of these standards, I will no longer love you. Selective, conditional, and dependent upon the appeal or merit of in the person loved in god personal love is always virtuous because god has perfect integrity so because god's character has perfect integrity his love is his personal love is always virtuous in man personal love is not virtuous because man does not possess perfect integrity. And In God's personal love is always virtuous because of the perfect character of God. His personal love, here you have God. God is plus R. His person and He is absolute justice. What the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses through the love of God. So for God's personal love, for God to exercise personal love towards anyone that person must be compatible with God in terms of perfect righteousness. And because God is perfect righteousness, that personal love is is going to be inherently virtuous towards the object. Before the fall, because man possessed plus R, God's love toward Adam and the woman in the garden was personal love. It was based on personal intimacy and compatibility of righteousness. In contrast, after the fall, when man lost perfect righteousness, God could no longer personally love man because there is nothing in man compatible to God's absolute standard. Which brings us integrity and volition of the person doing the loving is called unconditional love or impersonal love. Let me say that one more time. Love that is based... Now we're changing categories. Personal love is based on what's in the object. I love you. What's based in the object is perfect righteousness. Now if God can't love man with personal love now because he possesses minus R, how can God love man? This brings us to our second category. It's called either unconditional love or impersonal love. These two terms stress different aspects of that love. If the object has no value or compatibility, then instead of basing the love on the character or appeal or merit in the object, then the love must be based exclusively on the character and the merit and the integrity of the person doing the loving. I love you means... In this sense, means I love you irregardless of what you do because my love is not conditioned upon anything you do. My love is based completely on the stability of my own character. So when God says I love you to the unbeliever who possesses negative righteousness, it's not based on any appeal, any merit, any value in the person being loved. And this is where people get caught up into a trap all the time is they think that somehow God loves them because something is about them is attractive to God. Nothing about any of us is attractive to God. We are all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, by nature, we are all obnoxious and repugnant to the character of God. That's important to understand. You will never understand grace if you think that there's something in us that causes God... to to love us personally. It's not based here. It's based 100% on God's character. So let me review that definition one more time. Love that is based completely on the character, virtue, integrity, and volition of the person loving is called unconditional or impersonal. Unconditional, that term, when I say unconditional love, that stresses the absence of conditions necessary for love to be present. That stresses the fact that I am not placing any conditions on the object. You don't have to do anything, be anything, act any way, say anything, or do anything for me to love you. It's totally divorced from anything you do on your part. Now, that obviously is not emotional at all, is it? No emotion can be involved in that because my emotions go up one day and down the other, and you might do something to make me angry, and I but... See, that love's got to be based totally apart from anything you do for it to be unconditional. Impersonal, the term impersonal means, stresses the fact that it has nothing to do with the person involved. There does not have to be a personal relationship. There does not have to be personal affinity. There does not have to be personal likes or attraction for there to be love. There does not even have to be personal knowledge. See, this is the essence of the kind of love that is commanded of all believers. We're commanded to love every believer. Now, if you define that love in terms of sentiment or personal love, then you're going to be very, very frustrated in your Christian life because there's all kinds of people out there who are not very attractive, not very nice, and all kinds of believers who may do pretty awful things to us. You know, some of the worst sins committed in human history have been committed by believers. Some of the worst people in the world are believers. Some businessmen who have some of the worst ethics in the world are believers. They are believers who are out of fellowship and in carnality, but nevertheless, we're going to be surprised when we see them in heaven. But they are believers because grace is not based on what they do. So impersonal love, then, to define impersonal love, it seeks the highest and best for the person loved. It seeks the highest and best for the person loved regardless of likes, dislikes, attraction, repulsion, knowledge, lack of knowledge, or any factor other than the virtue and integrity of the person loving. Let me say that again. There's a lot in this. Impersonal love seeks the highest and best for the person loved regardless of likes, dislikes, attraction, repulsion, knowledge, lack of knowledge, or any factor other than the virtue and integrity of the person loved. One characteristic of impersonal love is that it is stable, it is unchanging. Therefore, for impersonal love to truly function, it must be based on something that is unchanging and immutable. Frankly, that's not your character and that's not my character. So how in the world can we exercise impersonal love? Well, we have to go back to our model, which is the character of God. Divine impersonal love is based on the perfect virtue and absolute integrity of God. He's immutable, he's unchanging, his perfect righteousness never changes. So human impersonal love must be based on who God is and what Christ has done on the cross. And that's what we see in Ephesians four thirty two. Ephesians four thirty two we find the command to believers be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other. Notice there's no qualification there. It says forgiving each other of the small things that don't really matter. Forgiving each other even when it you feel like it is destroying you as a person. Why? Notice there's a basis for this. We live in an era when forgiveness is absolutely misunderstood, where people are running around, oh, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Why? They just want you to forgive. No basis for that forgiveness. But in Scripture, forgiveness is always based on the fact that a payment has been paid, that the sin has been recognized and dealt with. It's, not just some, it, 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 it's free grace because a price has been paid. It's not cheap grace. Sometimes those of us who believe in a, a gospel of faith alone in Christ alone are accused by those in the Lordship crowd of believing in cheap grace. It's not cheap. God gave His only unique Son to go to the cross and pay the price for that sin with His life. Where the perfect Lord Jesus Christ bore our sins bodily on the cross. The perfect Jesus Christ had imputed to Him on the cross all of our sins. So, our concept of grace and forgiveness is not cheap, it's free, because the price has been paid for. We're to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, how? Just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. It's not based on who we are or what we've done, and it never can be, because we frankly do not have the character, the integrity, or the resources to generate this on our own. It can only be generated under the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's why we get to uh, Galatians 5:22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, this kind of love. It is a production of the Holy Spirit. It comes as a result of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, and it can't be generated or manufactured by the sin nature or by our own desires and efforts. It has to be based on who God is, which means you have to understand something about the character of God and how righteousness and justice function in conjunction with divine love if you're ever going to be able to exercise impersonal love towards other people. And impersonal love is the foundation for the exercise of personal love. If you have personal love without impersonal love, it's not going to last very long. And if you have a marriage based on personal love without impersonal love, it won't last long. Because it won't be long until something happens and the person you love does something that bothers you, offends you, upsets you, or aggravates you, and you're not going to feel very good, so you're going to want to go the other way because you just don't want to have anything to do with this person that's going to make you feel bad like that. So if you're going to have success in any kind of relationship, you must understand impersonal love, and to understand impersonal love, you have to understand the cross. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So that brings us to point five. Prior to the fall, God could love man personally because there was complete compatibility and rapport between perfect God and perfect man. Let's go back to the standard. We always have to go back to the garden to understand these dynamics. Prior to the fall, God could love man personally because there was complete compatibility and rapport between perfect God and perfect man. But, point six, but after Adam sinned and lost plus R there was no longer any rapport or compatibility between God and man. After Adam's sin, there's no longer any compatibility. Thus, God's personal love was replaced by impersonal or unconditional love. So divine impersonal love becomes the basis for God's actions towards man which are expressed through His grace, which is defined as undeserved favor and blessing. So all of God's grace policy toward man after the fall is based on what? Personal love that finds some merit in you? Not at all. Not at salvation. Not in the spiritual life. It's based totally and exclusively on who he is and what God has done for you, and what Christ did for you on the cross. That brings us to a very, very important point, which I think I'll save to next week to go over it again because it's something we don't understand. With the loss of rapport with God, divine love was no longer the point of contact with man. You see, this is, this is where we get into some real problems because most people think that God's love is the point of contact with man. God loves you because, well, that's just God's nature. So let's just all have a warm, fuzzy time thinking and talking about how God loves us. And therein we see the hidden assumption that divine love is sentimental and human. It's not. Divine love is not based on anything in man. So in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were plus R and God was plus R, God's plus R proves uh, man's plus R, love was free, God was free to personally love man, P-L, personally love man, and therefore personal love was the point of contact between God and man. And God was free to, to bless man in all kinds of ways based on his personal love. But once man becomes minus R, and there's a barrier erected between the perfect righteousness of God and the relative righteousness of man, God can no longer function towards man in terms of impersonal love. He can function towards man only in terms of impersonal love. Then what is it that guards divine essence? Justice. So the point of contact between man and God now becomes divine justice. Divine justice has to be satisfied before God can personally love man again. He has to he can only relate to man on the basis of impersonal love. He cannot have personal love with man because man